see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Halloween edition of Discovery. You, on the panel, what more? How was your weekend? A census taker tried to test me. I ate his liver with a nice Chianti and some fava beans. Well, that's enough of your personal life, Lockfield. On Discovery tonight, we have animal mythology, reanimated corpses, and severed heads kept alive. Animals have been excellent fodder for mythology down through the centuries. Lachlan Watmore explains why. This Halloween special feature is dedicated to my dear friend Candace Clift, who taught me the true meaning of Halloween. And seeing it's Halloween, and I'm a zoology graduate, I thought I'd talk about three species of animal that have seized our imaginations as symbols of horror, disgust and revulsion down through the centuries. I've always held the belief that humans look to non-human animals as symbols of horror because other animals are like us, and yet not like us. By that I mean that, on the one hand, humans and non-humans have similar needs, drives and life cycles. Most animals share with us locomotion, sharp senses, social hierarchies, and detailed, sometimes downright sneaky, reproductive strategies. All animals at least need nourishment and the means to reproduce. On the other hand, non-human animals are just that, non-human. They are beasts, and we are not. However, at this point, non-human creatures are in danger of losing their shock value because the more unlike us they become, the less we can see in them things about ourselves that disgust us. Any zoologist or animal lover will tell you that critters just do what they do. The lion isn't evil, it ate the gazelle because it was hungry and had cubs to feed. But that's not good enough if we want to scare ourselves. We have to anthropomorphise or attribute human characteristics to these very non-human creatures in order to make them the wild, insatiable beasts of our mythology. In 1974, Peter Benchley wrote a novel about a great white shark, which was a loose adaptation of a previous novel about a great white whale. In 1975, production began on the film of the novel, for which Benchley wrote the screenplay, and upon its release, moviegoers were encouraged to see the film by this trailer. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. As an agnostic, I'm of a firm belief that the devil is a very human invention, and it shows, because the popular image of Satan is of a half-human, half-animal creature. Satan is bipedal with two arms, a torso and a face, albeit a rather red one, but he also has horns and cloven hooves like a bull, a pointy tail like a reptile, and hairy legs like a goat. In fact, the goat's head has been the symbol of the devil for a long, long time. And it could not be more inaccurate to describe white pointer sharks as remorseless eating machines. White sharks actually have fairly limited appetites. 
After feeding on a decent sized seal, your average white pointer won't hunt again for up to a fortnight. The local seals can sense this and will happily swim in the vicinity of the shark when they detect it's no longer in hunting mode. Now, I must give Peter Benchley some credit here because he felt a little remorse over the hysteria that arose from Jaws and recently went on the telly to promote the preservation of white sharks whose numbers may be declining. To me, the extinction of such a magnificent and important predator is far more terrifying than anything human mythology could think of. However, back to human mythology, animals, as I mentioned, have always provided excellent beginnings for the construction of monsters in our campfire stories. I say construction because I believe that monsters, real or imagined, are purely the products of the human mind. Hang on, did I just say real as well as imagined monsters? Surely something in the mind isn't real. Well, I'm glad you brought that up and I'll get back to you in a moment. Meanwhile, let's look at two classic critters who should be given lifetime achievement awards for services to mythology. I refer, of course, to the bat and the wolf. <laughs> the cute little <laughs> What sweet music like mine. Thank you, Count Dracula. The vampire bat, Desmodus rotundus, is, as the name implies, a sanguivore. It feeds on blood. It's found in Central and South America and appears to be particularly partial to cattle, which makes it an agricultural pest. Contrary to popular belief, vampire bats don't suck blood like mosquitoes, but instead cut their host with sharp incisor teeth, create a flowing wound which is kept flowing by an anticoagulant in the bat's saliva, and then lap their meal up. The saliva also contains an anaesthetic to prevent the host from being irritated by the bat, which by now is hanging off it. The bat takes up to 20 minutes to finish its meal, but only takes about two tablespoons of blood before it's satisfied. In my opinion, given the small amount of blood taken and the thoughtfulness of providing a local anaesthetic, the vampire bat is pretty well mannered for an ectoparasite. Like most sanguivores, the vampire bat is small with a wingspan that rarely exceeds 35 centimetres and a body length no bigger than 8 centimetres. Not the smallest bat in the world, but certainly not the size of the large fruit bats. Small size makes sense when you consider the fact that sanguivory is a risky business. Host animals are usually resentful of ectoparasites and the larger the sanguivore, the more chance it has of being brushed off. The anaesthetic helps the cow forget the bat is even there. Vampire bats are amazing flyers as well. Like many other species of bat, they use incredibly precise echolocation to navigate, and their speciality is low-level flying. Using the onboard sonar which evolved millions of years before the Battle of Britain and which can fire up to 200 pulses a second, they can literally fly through the jungle at altitudes as low as half a metre. They are also adept at crawling and approach their host from the ground using heat sensors in their nose, which detect a vein close to the skin. Now, I'm really sorry to be upsetting you, but I have to warn you. Warn me? We were attacked by a werewolf. I'm not listening to this. On the moors, we were attacked by a lycanthrope, a werewolf. I was murdered, an unnatural death. And now I walk the earth in limbo until the werewolf curse is lifted. Shut up. The wolf's bloodline must be severed. The last remaining werewolf must be destroyed. The European wolf, Canis lupus, is, in my opinion, a beautiful animal, quite intelligent and capable of complex social interaction. They've also been extensively persecuted by European homo sapiens for the last 400 years, which has forced them out of their preferred habitat of tundra and open woodland into dense forests, wooded mountain slopes and steppe plains. 
Surprisingly, wolves are not exclusively carnivorous. In the late summer and autumn, they supplement their diet with berries and fruits. In the winter, they turn to large animals such as elk, bison, roe deer and ibex for food. Despite high intelligence being put to good use in cooperative pack hunting, only about one hunt in ten is successful. Frequently, the prey item is an old or diseased individual, which streamlines the population of the prey herd. Wolves have a complex social hierarchy with sophisticated communication between individuals to establish dominance, and the leader of the pack is always easy for a researcher to spot. He's the one with his head held high and his tail in the air, while the subservient males adopt more submissive postures with their tails between their legs and their eyes lowered. Fighting for dominance is short but intense. Fatalities while fighting, however, are very rare. Monstrous birth, evil will have its revenge. 
The ingredients for the zombie power are human meat, a toad made more poisonous by scaring up with a stinging worm, a poisonous centipede, a poisonous species of a spider, several psychoactive herbs such as datura, and a puffer fish. All of the ingredients are psychoactive and toxic, with the exception of the human meat. But the interesting one is the puffer fish, which makes a toxin called tetrodotoxin, which is a sodium channel blocker that disrupts communication in brain cells. The puffer fish is a source of the Japanese delicacy fugu, where the deadly poison sacs are removed before eating. Trace remains of the drug give Japanese diners a euphoric buzz. More than that, it's said to kill. The symptoms of tetrodotoxin poisoning appear quickly. Slight numbs the lips and tongue, feelings of floating, headache, rapid pulse, nausea, trouble walking, trouble speaking, trouble breathing, paralysis, and then coma or death. The coma gives the full appearance of death, good enough to fool many doctors. Of course, this raises the question of whether those people who died of puffer fish poisoning should really have been buried, but I'll leave that one to your imagination. Tetrodotoxin is 10,000 times deadlier than cyanide. It's made by bacteria which not only live in the puffer fish, but are also made use of the Australian blue-ringed octopus, Australian xanthides crab, the chorichia salamander from California, and marine bacteria in the North Sea. The victim in the coma may in fact still be conscious and awake because of the parts of the brain that are left untouched by the drug. So the victim may well hear his own funeral and be aware of his own burial. Naturally, when he's dug up, if he's lucky, by the sorcerer, He's awake and traumatised and willing to believe he's been reanimated from the dead. He's then drugged again with Datura, known as zombie cucumber, and kept in a suggestible and beautiful state to be a slave. Timothy Leary showed that psychoactive drugs are determined... they determine their, their effects by their expectations about the subject taking the drugs and the people around them. In a religion that grew out of rebellion against slavery, it's no wonder that this means that social control is very effective. So, are you safe from becoming a zombie? You stand of Haiti and avoid the poisonous animals. When you turned on the radio tonight, you probably thought that you yourself did this. That is, the conscious being that's the sum of all your experiences, thoughts and dreams, the self that perceives the tone and timbre of my voice, the self that thinks therefore it is, the self you know lives in your head just behind your eyes. But you yourself didn't turn on your radio or reach out to pick up your teacup a few moments ago. The zombie within you did it. The zombie is a metaphor being used by psychologists and neuroscientists to capture a strange division in our minds. Division between what your conscious self sees, smells and hears about in your daily life and what your brain and body unconsciously register is out there and needs dealing with immediately. The two are not always the same. By the time you notice a spider in the bath, it should be obvious that your unconscious brain and body, alias the zombie, have already seen it and begun to flinch. And by the time your conscious self realises you are blushing, sneering or giggling inappropriately at a cocktail party, it's too late to preserve your dignity. The zombie within let loose the emotion without consulting you yourself. As psychologists and neuroscientists probe the mind more deeply, they're uncovering evidence of a subtler, unconscious perception and abilities which science has only been dimly aware of until now. Even now, unconscious circuits of your brain are processing sensory information you yourself know nothing about and initiating little movements on the fly. Have you ever noticed how sometimes you yourself are just doing the right thing? Researchers measuring brain waves have found that the signals to move muscles are often initiated before the signals have had time to be processed by your conscious mind. Yet we often rationalise our automatic behaviour. And remember having made a conscious decision 
to act. While the Voodoo sorcerers in Haiti control society through people's fear of becoming a zombie, neuroscientists in the Western world may have discovered that it's all too late. That was Ian Wolfe explaining the mysteries of how the dead can walk, and I now feel sorry for all those Japanese pronounced dead from pufferfish poisoning. Well, they did die, eventually. Fascinated by everything in the world around me. Every day, my mind is blown out, my left and my right ear, and I'm having fun. And if you want to enjoy the world like I do, listen to Discovery. Sorry about that, folks. During this year's Festival of Science, Ian and I spoke to Dr. Stephen Juan, an anthropologist from Sydney University who specialises in the oddities of the human body. We began by asking him, when a person gets guillotined, can they feel their nose hit the basket? And can we keep a severed head alive? Yeah, well, that, you know, the two questions there, yeah, there, there was research actually done during the French Revolution that uh, there was a, a, a French physician that was interested in human physiology and he actually got people who were ready to be guillotined and he actually got them to, contr uh, to contribute to his experiment. Mm -hmm. What he had them do is he trained them to keep blinking, mm -hmm. to blink as much as they could and when their, when their heads were cut off, he then looked at their heads to see how long it took for them to stop blinking. Mm -hmm. And the range was from a little under two seconds to about 16 seconds, believe it or not. Good, it's really 16 seconds. 16 seconds. Yes, but what happened is that the blinking started to to slow down, mm -hmm. and uh, of course the faces had uh, terrified expressions on them. Yeah, it's funny that. Yeah. And uh, and so you don't really know what uh, this. Uh, whether the blinking was really conscious or not, or whether it was just nerves dealing with the shock. Yeah. But a minimum of about um, uh, a, a second and a half or two seconds. So that's a pretty frightening thing. So yes, uh, to answer the question, you probably would be able to feel your nose hit the hit the basket when you got your head cut off. Okay. Now you you asked about the you asked the question about can we keep a severed head alive? Yes, but it now, is. Now scientifically, uh, there has been a patent that's been. Uh, approved by the U.S. government in 1988 uh, for a device that does do just that, that attempts to keep uh, brain fluids, brain, uh, blood circulation, all of this uh, in a severed head, and uh, the, uh, the head is, uh, of course, uh, severed from the body, and it's placed on top of what is called a perfusing device, and uh, the perfusing device has all sorts of plastic tubes and pumps and all of this to keep all the levels correct. You'll be able to think see, uh, hear, possibly smell as mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. possibly taste as well, have basically all of your senses there. Can you move your jewel? This I don't know. Uh. Um, uh, it would depend on what muscles are involved. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I wouldn't know, but, okay. but, but certainly cognition, yeah. you know, thinking you'd be able to, to, uh, to have that. Now the, the idea is, you know, why would somebody you know, invent such a machine? If let's say you know we get robotic technology, Android technology to the to the uh, extent to, to develop that we actually put a biological human head on top of a machine, mm. uh, 
uh, then let's say someone dies of uh, lung cancer or stomach cancer or liver cancer or something, their brain is fine, but their body is packed up. Yeah. So this is why, you know, there might be a possible application of this. And, you know, Android technology is developing so quickly mm -hmm. that, that we're going to very soon uh, be to the point where uh, uh, a... Uh, an artificial body will be indistinguishable from a, a biological human body. In mm -hmm. fact, in the March issue of Discover Magazine, uh, there is an article, uh, or sorry, there is a quote by the, the Stanford University engineer who in the 50s invented um, the term artificial intelligence, and he's quoted as saying mm -hmm. the technology is occurring so quickly that these androids are becoming more and more like humans just around the corner. We're talking about maybe a decade. Yeah. He says that we have to right now define androids as appliances rather than people or else we're going to be confused. <laughs> right. It's extraordinary yeah. stuff. This is Michael Archer, director of the Australian Museum. Fascinated by everything in the world around me. Every day my mind is blown out, my left and my right ear, and I'm having fun. And if you want to enjoy the world like I do, listen to Discovery. brings us to the end of the program for this week. If you'd like to contact us and let us know just what topics you'd like discussed on the show, you can email the team at discovery at zip.com.au or call our feedback line on 02-9514-9555. That number again is 02-9514-9555. In your studio with me tonight... Actually, I'm all alone here except for technical support by... Discovery was produced by Locke in the studios of 2SDR Sydney and is broadcast nationally on Comrade Sat by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. I am Ian Wolf. Join us again next week for more science.